Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the SimKit podcast and our conversation on all things ketamine. For this chat, we have been joined by Ryan Marino and Sergey Motov. And in part one, we talked about the analgesic dosing of ketamine. Thank you for joining us for part two, where we talk about procedural sedation, RSI, and the chemical takedown. All right, so we're going to step out of the pain area. We were talking mostly about that dosing range of IV, 0.1 to 0.3 milligrams per kilogram. Let's get into part two and procedural sedation. So if you're following along with your show notes, we are going to be uh, skipping right over a couple dose ranges. We are going to be skipping past the 0.2 to 0.5 milligrams per kilogram, which is kind of the recreational dose for ketamine, which is not really part of our repertoire. We're not really looking for that recreational side effect. And then we have the partially dissociative dose of 0.5 to 0.8 milligrams per kilogram. But it is important if you're a listener and you're sort of paying attention to what we're talking about here, there's overlap, right? That recreational dose of 0.2 to 0.5 mg per kg overlaps some with our analgesics. So we need to pay attention to, and part of why we got into the dosing and side effects when we're talking about ketamine for pain. Moving into the full disassociation or disassociative dose, usually here we're talking about one milligram per kilogram dosing or higher, but it may even happen with 0.7 mg per kgs. First of all, Ryan, is that accurate? Would you make any adjustments in in terms of the endpoints of those dose ranges that I just mentioned? No, I think those are what is cited in the literature and the dissociative range is cited as one to two milligrams per kilogram, which is quite a large range to be honest, which kind of gives you an indication that this is not, um, not certain and every, everyone responds differently. So there are reports of people having dissociative effects at lower doses. Um, I have seen people have dissociative effects at even lower doses than that. Um, but yeah, the, those are the ranges. The good thing is that, I mean, ketamine is very difficult to have like a true overdose from. And so in terms of when you're thinking about the dosing while like going low, going slow, uh, knowing that you can kind of repeat your dose much more easily than you can react to giving someone too much, uh, there really is low risk of end organ toxicity or sort of kind of the problems that we worry about in in overdosing someone on a medicine. Okay, perfect. Yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons why we in the emergency department have loved it so much, particularly as we get into that that realm of procedural sedation is, especially if you're in a um, circumstance where you have to be giving the you know sedative and then performing the procedure, which is obviously never ideal, but some of us practice in single covered departments where this tends to or has to happen on occasion, medications where you feel safe, right? Where you don't run the risk of an overdose or, uh, you know, going too far off the end of a sedation scale is very valuable from just having confidence and the ability to focus on the other elements of the care you need to provide. So it's, it's good to recognize that for you, Ryan, you're noticing as well that one to two migs per kg, it can occur at lower doses, as some literature will cite, sort of 0.7 mgs per kg, but that's the dose range. And knowing that within that range, which obviously there's a you know 2x fold 
change in the concentration or amount of medication being delivered, it's very hard for a patient to overdose on this medication. So for you guys, I want to know kind of what procedures do you think about are being best suited for a ketamine-based sedation? Um, I think in my world, when I most reach for ketamine for a procedural sedation indication, um, pediatric patients are probably number one uh, because it is a, the most easy to use and readily available medicine that we have most of the time for pediatric procedural sedation. And it's also very safe and easy to dose. Uh, and again, given their higher rates of metabolism, usually can actually clear, clear quicker um, with probably lower, lower risk of complication as well. But I think other situations um, where I'm worried about an airway and don't want to give agents like propofol or, or even automate um, that have more of a risk of respiratory depression. And then certainly situations where patients have more pain um, because ketamine has these great analgesic effects. It is really useful in sedation when you know that there's going to be a significant component of pain, specifically like putting someone in traction for a long bone fracture, um, anything like that. And I think in traumas, it's, it's very useful, especially when you're worried about airway, uh, blood pressure, risk of kind of hemorrhagic shock, those kind of things. Um, anyone who is, is already in shock uh, can benefit from, from ketamine if they need some sort of sedation as well, uh, just because it doesn't really take away the adrenergic drive that they have the same way as other medicines like opioids will. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think as Sergey said initially, there's really no one who is wrong for ketamine for procedural sedation. It's just kind of thinking of each specific situation differently, uh, but the real exclusionary criteria would be pretty narrow. I like that, and I, I like you sort of bringing it back around as well, right? So as someone gets that dosing, they're traveling through that spectrum, right? They're traveling through the other dosing ranges, and the analgesia is there. We know that people kind of, when we see them go down from ketamine, we see that sort of perceptual disturbance, and then we have some emergence reaction because there's a partial dissociation as they metabolize. So it's important to not forget that as we increase our dosing, we are getting some of the effects from lower dosing, obviously. So the analgesic properties of ketamine used in these sedations makes a lot of sense to me. Um, obviously, you know, pediatrics completely agree. That's one of my go-tos in that regard. You know, insertion of a chest tube in trauma, as you're saying, these sort of painful conditions, INDs of really, you know, bad abscesses or abscesses in very sensitive areas of the body where people can't tolerate just local anesthetic is another consideration. All of that sort of jives with my practice. So first of all, thank you for confirming what I do. And then uh, secondly, I guess I'd ask when you're doing your dosing here, how do you approach that? Are you are you kind of starting on the one or the two mgs per kg? Is it patient specific? Do you redose throughout the process? Kind of break that down for our listeners a little bit. So for me, and this is just my own personal practice, this is not necessarily based in any sort of real evidence, but uh, I will usually try to start on kind of the lower end with one mg per kg. Obviously, every situation is different and certain situations you can tell that you're going to need more than that. Um, but having a repeat dose there would also be my standard, um, knowing that many people will need the, the two per kilo um, and then kind of giving it giving it slowly to start. And if you're giving a, like a slow, very slow IV push or running it through a pump even, then you can really 
see how much you actually need uh, and you have less risk of the kind of apnea and, and other things that we worry about. I think I found uh, Brazil sedation is one of the greatest art and the expertise that the Mercer physician are gifted with. And it's not just given to us, it's years of practice and polish on the craft and everything else. I am totally agree with everything you guys said with respect to indications for ketamine, utilization for presilocidation, acute muscle cell pain, reduction, close reduction, and of course, pediatrics. Uh, personal experience being that I tend to use ranges 0.75 to 1, especially when it comes to 1 max per kilo on ketamine, and I do very, very slow infusion, but I tend to add a little smidge of propofol. And I'll tell you why. I usually joke that I use ketamine to induce and use propofol for smooth sailing. I found that if I do 10 to 15 milligram of propofol, slow intravenous push before ketamine, and then I do 0.75 to 1 and get them to the plane of being fully dissociated because partial dissociation is nightmare for a patient or a physician, and then I can continue and give another 10 to 15 of propofol, while I may give myself extra 10, 15 minutes of longer duration of the procedure, when they're coming back, when they're emerging, they connect in their brain to subbrain, they feel it becomes much smoother. So the recovery period, I found it was much more pleasant for patient and physician. So I don't know, Ryan and Jason, what are you guys approach to? Do you add propofol, sub-anesthetic dose, or lotus propofol to ketamine, or you just go as a sole agent? Well, I really like that you brought that up because I do use them together uh, sometimes, and I know that it is a very popular thing in emergency medicine, the like ketofol combination. And it is interesting to note and also a good thing, I think, in terms of kind of the risk benefit and safety profile to talk about how when you do use them together, you can use lower doses of both. And so certainly, I mean, propofol is the, the riskier medicine, but you can get very good uh, sedative effects with using much lower doses of both of those agents when they're used in conjunction due to kind of their synergistic effects. Yeah, I love it the way you said it. You know what, my personal experience, I was always against ketofol, and I tell you why, maybe I'm too too conservative. The notion of having a true drug in one syringe, always been against very believe in me, because I have I like to have a control over a medication I give it. If I have a drug mixed in one syringe, what? how do I know what I'm giving, right? So yeah. I the word ketofol, have a syringe with ketamine, which is transparent, have a syringe with propofol, which is milk, and use one of each, you know, two ml, three ml, but let's have a control over, you know, what we're giving. The very notion of mixing two drugs and then just hoping everything's going to be right was, I was against it from the beginning. And I'm glad you brought up ketoful <laughs> business. I just hope people understand that mixing two drugs and losing full control over it, it's not safe. Yeah, I am with you on that. I do not like when they're mixed together in the same syringe. I always thought I was just being kind of, um, overly picky but no you bring up a very good point yeah it's a i mean it's a it's a pithy way to describe the use of the two medications but having them separate and using them and allowing them to mix in the human makes sense to me as a ketofol sedation um and then sergey you're giving it initially as propofol followed by ketamine when they start to emerge are you redosing the propofol or is there still an effect that many you know minutes later so what I do, yes, I do 10 to 15 of propofol, 10 milligram of propofol, very slow push, so the patient may burn a little bit, they get relaxed. And then I, you know, I give them ketamine and they very transition, get to the Alice in Wonderland, they cross in the plane and they go into the other world. It's much, 
more palatable. Once they're dissociated and we're doing the procedure, I'll give them another 10 to 15 of propofol. For the most part, that's enough. So when they're coming back, the transition returning, it's much smoother. Because we've all seen patients going through this, you know, they're trying to reconnect and they're going through some emergence phenomena. Some get agitated, some start screaming, some get just crazy. Look what just happened to me. Propofol tends, at least in my experience, smooth it out. And they just open up their eyes and the man asks, what am I, what happened to me? And it's been very beneficial, at least in my practice. I like it. I like it. I have not used the combined agents before. I think I'm maybe a little bit too much of a purist in my own right, um, but it's something for me and, and the listeners to consider as an option. Um, I just wanted to bring up specifically uh, rapid sequence intubation. Are you guys dosing in any different fashion or administering at a different uh, interval or speed when you're doing RSI? Not typically. I mean, depending on the exact situation in terms of trying to have the like perfect RSI where it's not, not really RSI anymore, um, I think one one to two megs per kg uh, is what I would go for. I don't think I, I am dose adjusting it. Okay. I, I don't either. I do, you know, one to two, usually it's 1.5 megs per kilo, and it's, it's a rapid push. This is the only entity when I do a very rapid push, as name implies, rapid sequence intubation. Right. And in that way, we're, you know, part of what we like about the ketamine is, is preventing apnea. Um, but we know that in these circumstances, we're ready to manage apnea should it be precipitated by rapid administration of ketamine. Uh, any other things you guys want to add to that sort of procedural sedation before I talk about takedowns? Well, one thing I think that I didn't mention um, that is a good time to use ketamine, and we've talked about, I mean, airway being like a, a big reason to turn to or reach for ketamine. But in someone who you're trying to do like a nasopharyngeal scope on um, or some other procedure where you need them to be maybe dissociated or, or very, very sedated, uh, but don't necessarily want to end up intubating somebody in your department, um, I feel like that, that dosing of ketamine is also very useful. And with the kind of rise of NP scopes in emergency departments, I think this is probably something that we'll see more of as well. That's a good point. I agree. That's a good point. Yeah, I was wondering a little bit about that and, and I, bringing ourselves to the sort of the conclusion of procedural sedation. We've talked a little bit about different routes of administration. And so, Ryan, as you mentioned airway things, we, you know, I had a case that we are talking about on this podcast and other episodes where we actually used ketamine to facilitate removal of a foreign body from the upper airway. And your NPL scoping, I think, is not dissimilar to that, allowing for us to manipulate, get into the nares and the hypopharynx without really causing a lot of agitation or irritation to the patient. So my practice is increasing in the use of intramuscular ketamine for a version of procedural sedation, particularly in pediatric patients where IV access is challenging. I was wondering if you guys have any experience with that, recommendations, or words of caution for that practice. I don't think so. I mean, your onset and duration might be both be prolonged, um, but otherwise, I'm not really changing my practice in terms of kind of monitoring, dosing, um, anything like that. Okay, that that's confirming for me, I think. And, and it certainly gets us sometimes into a position where you can move toward an IV or, or get, you know, more secure means of, of management of the patient to, um, you know, deal with any sequelae that might happen from your IM administration. But it seems to be a uh, reasonable approach for 
you know, getting a pediatric patient where IV access is not readily available uh, into a, a place of, you know, either analgesia or sedation to allow us to, to manage them more appropriately. That's, a, I think, a good transition into sort of our last area of conversation for me in the use of ketamine, which is part three, what I kind of call the takedown. And I wanted to end the conversation here essentially with the management of agitated delirium, um, where this term, the takedown, is used for basically whatever you know you might want to call it, the chemical takedown, chemical restraint, I am anxiolysis, uh, if you want to avoid the use of the term restraints in the chart. It goes by many names, but essentially we're looking to have rapid-acting sedatives to control a patient who's in a state of agitated delirium. So first I wanted to ask you guys, how do you define agitated delirium, or when do you know that a patient is experiencing this, right? I think drunk and annoying is one thing, but agitated delirium with its 30 to 40% morbidity mortality is, is very different. Um, so how do you sort the two out personally? So this is a really controversial topic, um, and I don't think there is necessarily a good answer. And there's a reason that agitated delirium is not considered a like true quote unquote medical diagnosis because of this. And not to kind of like quote someone ridiculous here, but it's one of those things where I know it when I see it. Um, but I would say that when someone needs to be chemically restrained um, or given like a, a sedative medication, they should be a danger to themselves and others without it uh, and be at risk for serious harm to themselves or other people and also not be in control of their own, not have capacity, I guess would be a better way to phrase it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. You know, we, we got a belligerent, uh, intoxicated patient who's screaming, yelling and seem to be aggressive, but conversing and may exhibit some evidence of understanding that he's just took so, too much of alcohol and we just ask him to sit down and sort of follow command. Agitated delirium contrary, you have completely confused person who is at danger to himself. Another, mind you, exhibiting some great aberration hemodynamics and totally detached from reality. And these are the people that we tend to act rather promptly on. And I think one of the things that gets kind of missed in a lot of these discussions is that the reason this has such high mortality is not because of the treatment, it's the untreated or improper treatment of quote-unquote agitated delirium. Um, and so if you look at the deaths, the 40% mortality rate, um, it is usually, I mean, because of the use of physical restraints causing actual asphyxiation or people who are so hyperactive if they don't injure themselves have some sort of other end organ damage just from things like rhabdomyolysis and, and that. Um, so ketamine itself is is very safe and is definitely preferable to those other outcomes. Okay, perfect. I, I like that in terms of a transition and, and taking a, a second to recognize that it's not our management of agitated delirium that's killing people. It's the agitated delirium itself, right? It's the tachydysarrhythmias from the catecholamine surge or the rhabdo, as you mentioned, or other elements of their you know, hyperthermia, you name it, there are a lot of things that can lead to morbidity there, but it's allowing them to continue in that trajectory that's problematic. So Ryan, you mentioned it's safe. Uh, tell us a little bit, you know, are there that you hear about, which is a, a terrible way to recite the literature, but there are, you know, reports about intubation requirements upon arrival to the emergency department when EMS or other personnel have given 
intramuscular ketamine. How safe is this? And do you guys use it in your departments? Yeah. So I guess you caught me there. I try to avoid using words like safe. Um, but when it comes to ketamine, I mean, ketamine, as far as medicines go, is one of the safest ones that we have. Um, and so while nothing is inherently safe at the end of the day, you can have problems related to it. I think ketamine has some of the, the fewest problems that we see um, and certainly is safer than kind of the untreated agitated delirium. Uh, certainly there are special populations where you, you maybe want to worry more. And we've talked about some of them, but I think in terms of like a high dose, rapid uh, push of ketamine, however you're giving it in someone who has like advanced cardiomyopathy, congestive heart failure, something like that maybe is a little more concerning. Um, and there's certainly a lot of concern within the anesthesia literature related to that. Uh, but overall, I mean, the untreated agitated delirium is what kills people or improperly treated. And again, it's much better than having six people hold, hold someone down, sit on their chest, et cetera. Um, and at the end of the day, the end organ effects from ketamine are, are very low, low, to low risk of toxicity. Um, reports of people who have ketamine administered and then have some sort of bad effect or end up in the emergency department needing to be intubated right away likely have some sort of confounding. And it's also important to just remember that the agitated delirium, while not a, a medical diagnosis per se, indicates that someone is having a, a true medical emergency. So whether it's a, a drug overdose and they're hyperthermic, they're experiencing organ failure from that, um, that, that alone is a reason that someone could have a bad outcome in itself. And so I think it really is kind of each situation, it's going to be dependent on on the specific situation, but is more likely to be a result of whatever underlying etiology and effects of the agitated delirium than the ketamine itself. Because there's very few situations where I could say you, if you add ketamine to that, you're going to hurt someone. Or if you add ketamine to what's going on, that's a, a sure way to kill somebody. Um, those kind of situations don't really exist, which is why so many people will say that the ketamine is so safe. Um, and why I would agree with that. I couldn't say better than Ryan. Thank you for doing this. And I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. You know, ketamine, based on my own experience and even literature support and everything else, despite those reports, it's one of the safest medications. And patients' comorbidity and maybe some drug-drug interactions, ingestion and what have you, probably play a major role in the fact that some of the, you know, respiratory adverse effect may ensue but it's not so attributed to ketamine. Ketamine, it's fast sensitive section, short acting, it's just overall very beneficial drug, probably top drug that should be used for this very indication such as agitated delirium. And the discussion I think about agitated delirium and ketamine kind of gets muddy um, because of the fact that there are situations where it has been used as um, like a coercive form of restraint or been used inappropriately and so that's also something that everyone should be very cognizant of who is administering it in what situation definitely plays a big role. But in terms of kind of at the end of the day, the drug itself is not toxic. Um, you can introduce it in a way that is is toxic, I suppose. Uh, if you're like holding someone down and giving them ketamine inappropriately, um, that that definitely is completely different situation. Well said, gentlemen. I, I like that sort of summary of that topic. and I. And it, it makes sense to me in that regard. I personally have maybe a, a biased perspective that if when I think about those circumstances where someone comes in via EMS having received ketamine intramuscular, 
If I think about the patients that I've done procedural sedation on using ketamine, if I saw that person in that state come through my my department, rather than being the one to put them into that state, I feel like my threshold for an intubation would certainly be different, right? My concern for that patient's airway protection and ability to manage themselves is going to be slightly different. And so I might be, you know, inaccurately describing those circumstances, but having someone come in in a state where they have been sedated with ketamine in that regard, similar to how they appear when we are doing their procedural sedation, despite their ability to maintain their airway reflexes, that's going to be alarming to a lot of ED physicians. So to summarize what you're saying, I think your our management of agitated delirium needs to be taken seriously. It is the delir- agitated delirium itself that is detrimental to people and our physical restraints or uh, production of rhabdomyolysis or hyperthermia, that's the problem. Ketamine is generally a great agent. We can use the term probably safe agent for this use. And we I don't think we've mentioned the dosing as yet. So ketamine, it's generally thought of in my mind, four milligrams per kilogram IM. Is that how you guys are dosing this agent uh, for this indication? I think that's a good like general approach. I've seen, I mean, two milligrams per kilogram intravenous push, five up to five milligrams per kilogram intramuscular. And again, as has been stated repeatedly, I think if you want to go on the lower end, knowing that you can repeat it, um, certainly in these situations where maybe safety is a concern in using a exposed uh, syringe needle into someone, you may want to start with four milligrams per kilogram uh, intramuscular, but they're really the risk of kind of overdosing someone if, if you start there is, is very low, if not completely negligible. Perfect. Yeah, I uh, I agree with the dosing ranges. You know, three to five, probably average. The most commonly uses four milligram per kilogram. But once again, as long as people, you know, listeners understand that the notion is individual approach. You can still give a little more if you need to, but risks versus benefits. See the patient in front of you and choose appropriate dose that will give you better benefit, best benefit of chemically restraining this patient in front of you, protecting patients, protecting your fellow colleagues. Excellent. And w- within that, so we have that sort of three to five. Um, if you say someone has, you know, kind of chewed through your more typically used intramuscular medications, five adroperidol or haloperidol with two midazolam, um, that did very little to or for the patient, what are you guys dosing there? Is it is it still at that same number? Are you dose adjusting in those patients? I would not dose adjust. I would probably maybe start with four or five rather than the three, but would stay in the three to five range. Um, and knowing that in, in those cases in particular, like maybe midazolam would be another good adjunct to kind of give with the ketamine or knowing that you might have to repeat it as well. Yeah, same here. No dose adjustment. I would probably start with four. Excellent. And my, my last question, having trained in North Philadelphia, seeing PCP, what if someone comes in high on PCP, Ryan? As you mentioned, they're analogous or they have you know properties that are very similar. Are you dose adjusting if you have someone who is wet, who's high on PCP with agitated delirium? So this is a great question. And PCP is weirdly very, very popular, prominent in the Cleveland area too, which it's, it's very rare in the United States nowadays. There's just very few pockets where people use a lot of PCP. Um, I don't think it's wrong to give PCP if you're 
trying to keep someone calm, um, knowing that the dissociative effect is the, the goal here. Um, if someone is agitated on PCP, it's because they are not yet dissociated. Um, in terms of kind of overdoses and, and tox stuff, we always reach for benzos first. And I know I've mentioned midazolam probably too many times uh, on this podcast already, but you can always try, try benzos, but ketamine itself would not be a bad option and would actually, I think, treat PCP toxicity if someone is, is agitated and, and needs to be sedated. Um, just knowing that you might again have to experience kind of their emergence reaction when it starts to wear off because the, the underlying problem is related to the, the same receptors that you're, you're medicating them with. Excellent. I like that explanation. And yeah, it makes sense, right? If we're talking about that spectrum, we're working our way down, we're going higher and higher doses. If someone's on PCP, ketamine as an agent for management of that, pushing them just further down the K-hole for uh, as a colloquial term for it is not a, a bad idea. There's no contraindication there. You might sort of, I would imagine, stick in that middle range of the intramuscular administration. But as we already mentioned in this podcast, there's really not a poisoning that can happen with ketamine. You're not going to necessarily overdose a patient in that way if they've had PCP as well as ketamine on board. So I appreciate that perspective. And I, I do love the fact that you are in a place where you experience some some PCP patients. Got to love the wet patient. They are a wild bunch, as it were. PCP is a, a very interesting drug. I, I mean, I could talk about it for like hours, but yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe <laughs> next time we can we can have another podcast on PCP. Uh, not that different than this one, probably. So anyway, guys, I really appreciate it. Listeners, this has been obviously a bit longer of a podcast, and I appreciate those who are sticking through to the end because ketamine is so versatile. It's so useful for us, and it's rare to get such uh, great experts with with varying degrees of expertise in different areas of this medication. So gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us. Take a look at the show notes as we go through all the different indications, dosing, and routes of use for ketamine. And again, thanks so much, guys. I really appreciate talking with you on this topic. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. Thanks for having us.